often struck when talking to people about MMT that they seem to think that it's merely a set of ideas or some sort of academic school on its own, whether those encompass the idea that you know, money is a creature of government and law, or that there are no nominal limits to public spending, or even that the rate of unemployment is a political decision. And of course, these are really important, perhaps even transformational ideas. But I think I and we in this podcast insist that MMT is more than that. MMT is really a movement. Right. And it's a movement that is interdisciplinary, intersectional, and international. It involves academics across the social sciences and humanities, lawyers, finance and political journalists, activists and organizers, union leaders, and politicians, as well as institutions such as nonprofits, think tanks, and media organizations. Which is why we're really excited to be speaking today with Andres Bernal, who's a PhD student in the Public and Urban Policy Doctoral Program at the New School, and also an advisor to Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He's come to play a constitutive role in some of the most exciting recent developments related to the MMT movement. And as you'll hear in our conversation today, his biography is something of a window into the history and future of that movement. Here's our conversation. Andres Banal, uh, welcome to Money on the Left. Pleasure to be here. To start, can you tell our listeners just a bit about your personal background and scholarly training? Yeah, sure. So um, I I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, I immigrated to the, here to the U.S. when I was four years old. And I kind of grew up um, in different places. I, I spent my childhood in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, around 10 or 11 years old, I moved to South, South Texas, to the Rio Grande Valley. And um, that's where I spent most of my life. That's kind of like my, my home base now. But uh, after college and so during my undergrad, I studied philosophy. And that was kind of the formation of my um, ideas and, and kind of intellectual curiosities and whatnot. Mostly I was interested in these two themes that kind of keep coming back in my life in different ways. And one of them is this theme uh, around questions of uh, the meaning of life and existentialism, um, philosophies around uh, experience, phenomenology, psychology, psychoanalysis, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, there was these this deep interest in political questions, uh, social theory, political philosophy, why is the world the way it is? Why um, are hierarchies the way they are? What are political structures? What are social structures? What are social systems? That sort of thing. So those two questions were kind of like the foundation uh, of my life. And after uh, after my undergrad, I mo- moved to uh, San Diego and I did a master's there at the University of San Diego in leadership studies. And so that that's kind of that was kind of like an interesting part of my journey because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, but I had been very influenced from the time I was 17 by this um, nonprofit institute called the National Hispanic Institute uh, that I participated in when I was like 17. And so they run these like leadership development programs for high school Latinos and Latinas around the country. 
where we like build our own government and participate in these debate tournaments and really hone and develop these skills around speaking and understanding um, kind of systems and logistics and government processes and institutions and having these really interesting, very impactful, formative experiences when you're a teenager. So that really made a mark on me. And um, it kind of contributed to this whole narrative around who am I versus why is the world the way it is? Um, (laughs) So I wasn't sure where to take that. Um, I don't know if I was as uh, confident with myself as a thinker, as a writer, you know, at that time in my life, as definitely as I am now or anything like that. So I, I found this very interesting program in leadership studies, and it focused a lot on organizations and uh, group life, the way that people construct like authority relationships and um, their own identities within groups and within organizations. And I found that very, very interesting. So it had like this one practitioner side to it where we would learn a lot of uh, coaching skills and consulting skills. And then also it had this other dimension where you could study policy, um, a lot of nonprofit management skills. And they had this one particular class that for me was really kind of the thing that did it, that made me decide to go to this program. And that was a summer class that you could take in Spain at the, at the Mondragon Cooperative. And so, um, you know, for the listeners, Mondragon is, is a worker owned firm in Spain. It's the most famous, most, most successful, makes uh, several billion dollars in profit with uh, thousands of employees and it's all democratically owned and managed. So we got to go over there. I got to go over there, spend some time in Mondragon, uh, listen to the worker owners, get toured, uh, hear a lot of presentations. So that was a great experience as well. And uh, spent two years in San Diego doing that. Um, So what happened after that? uh, I took a year off. I lived in Austin, Texas for a bit. I did some some kind of independent contract work with a organization there that uh, no longer exists, but they were doing some really great work. They were called Cooperation Texas. And they were um, kind of expanding worker-owned businesses in Central Texas. So I did, uh, I I interned for them. I did a little bit of uh, research for them and uh, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I did, I also did an internship for a startup that was putting together like these leadership development experiences for um, different nonprofits and organizations and hospitals and stuff like that for the, for the employees and the the staff. So anyways, I, I found this program at the new school. Uh, in public and urban policy. And it kind of had the, the master's programs that were <clears throat> in that department were very similar to the things I was interested in. So they had like their organizational change management program. They had um, an environmental uh, sustainability program. They had a policy program. So I was like, wow, this is really interesting. This is kind of like everything I've been doing, both my practitioner side um, and also these theoretical questions that I'm so interested in. Because at that point, um, I felt that the best path forward towards kind of systemic change involved democratizing economic life. And uh, that became a very important theme for me. Because, um, you know, I kind of wanted to to explore why many uh, big social movements 
and uh, kind of attempts to systemically uh, transform society were either either didn't go didn't reach their full potential, uh, maybe faced the backlash that uh, began to dismantle a lot of uh, the advances that were made. So, for example, like in a lot of welfare states in, in, in the 20th century and whatnot, or kind of devolved into, you know, authoritarian uh, types of types of dynamics. And, um, you know, we all know all the criticisms from that side. So I felt that while maintaining a lot of the same ideals from kind of progressive democratic socialist movements and, and social social democracy, uh, social, yeah, social democracy itself, introducing this other layer of economic democracy and of worker ownership, a, a cooperative sector in the economy and expanding that as much as possible uh, would be an important thing. That's kind of where I was uh, going into my doctorate. So I went ahead and applied to the doctoral program there at the new school. And it was the only program I applied to and I got in. So I decided to go ahead and, and move forward with that and study an initiative in New York City that was being led by the city council that actually started the year I applied um, to use discretionary funding that the city council had uh, to kind of expand worker ownership in New York. So that's what kind of led me there. And that began that journey. So over the past few years, you've been swept up into this whirlwind at the heart of contemporary politics and economics. And so how did this happen? How do you see your role in contemporary political struggles and intellectual debates because of it? Yeah, it's, it's just been it's been a really wild ride. Um, so I spent three to four years um, doing this work, getting to know the people, the activists, the thinkers and the organizations that were um, building and expanding uh, economic democracy in New York City. And I began to learn more about things like participatory budgeting, community land trusts, and these other uh, initiatives at the local level that were meant to kind of uh, empower communities directly. I uh, I was very interested in that. And I kept doing that. Um, And then, of course the 2016 presidential election came came by and um you know i I had been pretty disappointed with what we had achieved before you know i i i think i was uh in early in college when obama ran for the first time and at that point in my life that was very exciting for me because of everything that represented etc but you know like so many others as soon as the policies came in and the appointments came into different parts of the government and whatnot, I was, I was pretty, pretty disappointed. So it was kind of like, a, you know, there was a layer of pessimism there as the election approached. But um, when Bernie Sanders announced and then all of a sudden kind of became this huge phenomenon, <clears throat> it was it was incredible. It was a very, very powerful thing. And I and I kind of started believing that there may be a chance to introduce many of these um, initiatives to create more systems change into the mainstream of the political discussion. Um, I think at that time too, it, 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 throughout my, my doctoral program, um, I, I became became very interested in attempts to try to denaturalize the way that we speak about economics. Um, 
deeply influenced by people like Karl Polanyi and, uh, and the field of economic sociology, I, 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 uh, I really gravitated to this idea that, you know, if we look at the history of markets and of capitalism and its development, um, so many, and, and, you know, in fact, kind of just the mainstream and all of the orthodoxy and even people on the left speak about these dynamics as if there, there are like these natural forces that just kind of move uh, and have this logic to it. But that logic is not uh, shaped legally, politically, you know, like that, those things are secondary, but really at the core is this kind of natural phenomenon, whether it's, you know, moving through history as something that can't be necessarily shaped in different ways, or whether it's just that markets uh, are the primary source of human interactions, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and instead of started looking at the way that, um, economies have been shaped the way that the state was in the state and governments were heavily involved in creating markets within capitalism. And uh, this notion that governments intervene into markets was kind of completely nonsense. It just completely misunderstood the way um, that these institutions were structured. So I was very, very interested in that. And I felt that with Bernie's run, you know, it, because it was out of nowhere uh, and it kind of disrupted a, a lot of what mainstream political discourse was at that time, I felt like, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to start to have these conversations and um, and expand the level of, uh, of debate that we're having. So, of course, um, you know, in the end, Bernie doesn't make it. But uh, that that experience, I think, was so influential to my friends and I, that um, <clears throat> one of my good friends here in New York City, who you know, flashed back to that nonprofit in Texas, uh, the National Hispanic Institute, um, a friend of mine, she had participated in it as well, and we were, but with kind of alumni um, that had gone back to uh, function in different roles, different educational roles, and whatnot. Um, she was also very moved. She participated in in uh, the Sanders campaign organized in the Bronx. Um, she was very moved by it as well. After the campaign, she decides to, or around the time, she decides to go to Standing Rock and uh, and join the protests over there and has this like deeply transformative experience, you know, like meets with elder, ind indigenous elders. And, and it's just kind of like the, the spirit, the energy at the time was just kind of crazy, right? <clears throat> So her name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So she comes back from Standing Rock and she's like super kind of motivated. And, uh, you know, I remember we had had conversations before any of that about, you know, what what do we do? Like, what is our larger purpose? Um, she would always tell me things like, I feel like I have to, I'm, I'm meant to do something. Like, I don't know what that quite, what that is yet, but something big. And, um, she decides to run for Congress. So um, for the first you know, year, it, it was something like, it, I'm so happy that you're making this decision. I want to support you any way I can. But um, I think deep down, we, we all understood that it was a very, very difficult thing to accomplish and tried to be realistic about it. <clears throat> but just as things unfolded, 
little by little, even even though some moments just seemed so difficult uh, in that campaign and, and, you know, the length to which that extended and moments where you felt like you were just losing any kind of traction or, you know, you had to think to yourself, is, is this really worth it? <clears throat> and still find the resilience to keep organizing, keep speaking at events, keep telling people. And, and also like with volunteers, with the people that were advising her, people around her, keep the faith, uh, keep believing that something like this could, could produce important results. We, we just stayed at it. Everybody contributing in whatever way they best could. Um, and all of a sudden by the, by kind of late spring, in uh, 2018, so a couple months before that primary, she starts to like get more and more popular. <clears throat> Does this interview at, on the Intercept that I remember very clearly, where she spoke about ICE, spoke about abolishing ICE, and kind of the history of a lot of our immigration practices and whatnot, in a way that you know most Democrats just don't even dare going there. And I was like, wow, like what a spectacular interview! And more and more people start catching on. Then uh, that that uh, campaign video drops and goes viral. So <laughs> I think it was at that point I'm like, you know what? I think I think she can pull this off. Like th- she's gonna pull this offset uh, upset off. What the Bronx and Queens needs is Medicare for all, tuition-free public college, a federal jobs guarantee, and criminal justice reform. We can do it now. It doesn't take a hundred years to do this. It takes political courage. A New York for the many is possible. It's time for one of us. Vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on June 26th. Um, so I think the story starts to get interesting from, from my perspective uh, around that time because I had been spending about a year at that point um, reading and getting to know the body of work that we call modern monetary theory, right? Now we get to the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, because because I, w- I was so just frustrated with the way that we were talking about everything that had to do with these bold ideas and trying to, um, you know, I'm a big fan of non-reformist reform. So, you know, reforms that are not just trying to tweak the system or make it a little bit more humane, but reforms that are going in a direction that could have more substantive, substantive uh, transformational effects uh, over time and as we kind of build on, on these changes. So, you know, I, I was just incredibly frustrated because anytime that we proposed any major idea to kind of decommodify aspects of our lives that shouldn't be commodified in the first place, like healthcare and, and all these kind of things, you're met with this answer, right, of like how you're going to pay for it. And so many uh, on the center left and progressives and, and even on the left answer that question on neoclassical, neoliberal conservative terms. So we like debate on their terms and kind of get, I get the impression that, that um, <clears throat> we get kind of pushed against the wall and we end up having these arguments around, you know, where are we going to find exactly the kind of money that we need to fund these programs and then how are we going to keep that money going? And then when we win, it's like this barrage from the right about whatever program, you know, going broke or whatever. <clears throat> and I just felt like it, it can't quite be like that. Um, and I was skeptical for two reasons. One, because from what I did know about the New Deal at the time, I was like, it, I don't think that that's how it 
works. Like that's kind of crazy. I know that taxes were heavily increased on uh, the most wealthy people, but uh, you know a lot of them also found huge loopholes at that time too. And, and you know, a and b, um, it's not like they were trying to find dollar for dollar for things, you know. So I was skeptical already from that. And then secondly, given that I was uh, into economic sociology and trying to understand the social embeddedness of economic institutions, of money, of firms, of markets, uh, I thought to myself, you know, I think there's another layer here. So I had recalled that at a conference when I first got to New York, there was uh, this kind of wacky, zany group called the Modern Money Network. And they, <laughs> they had a cool logo. And, uh, and they kind of just like stayed in the back of my mind for the next four years. And then finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give these guys a look again. And um, kind of started researching. And yeah, so I, I went down the rabbit hole. And it took me a while to really start to grasp the ideas beyond um, some of the just kind of like surface layer assumptions that I think lead to a lot of confusion um, and, and form like a more in-depth understanding of, of what were the implications of these things that, that, that modern monetary theory was saying about money, about federal finance, about sovereignty, uh, about resources, all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> so, um, of course, I, I end up becoming a supporter and advocate of the jobs guarantee because I'm introduced to modern monetary theory and I learn about the role of the jobs guarantee as a central component um, of full employment, of, uh, of kind of working as a stabilizer for inflation, of challenging the notion that uh, we have to keep a natural rate of unemployment in order to uh, keep inflation at, at desirable levels, all of these things, right? <clears throat> and uh, and I end up at this uh, event uh, having a conversation with some of uh, AOC's volunteers and, and, and staffers from the time. And, <clears throat> you know, we're talking about UBI and kind of talking about universal basic income and talking about like different things that can be proposed to really stand out and keep pushing because, you know, that was that's always been at the core of AOC's political project is to kind of keep pushing uh, with what's possible in a way that uh, is accessible to people that doesn't feel intimidating. And so, you know, there was this moment where I'm just like, you know, you all need to really look into this jobs guarantee thing because um, it's really powerful and it's, and it's uh, grounded in this framework that, uh, that I think is going to revolutionize the way that we understand policy and politics. And it just so happened that around that time there was a conference on the New Deal, kind of in memory of the New Deal, and then looking forward from the New Deal, where many uh, modern monetary theory scholars were on panels, uh, including, well, so Derek Hamilton, who was at uh, my program at the New School at the time, he was there, and the, the conference itself was at the New School. <coughs> so <clears throat> Pavlina Cherniva was there, Stephanie Kelton was there, Randy Ray was there, you know, a lot of the big names. Uh, and I invited Alexandria to to come with and watch some of these presentations. So she got there like right in time for I think it was like Derek and Stephanie's presentation on on the jobs guarantee and some other things. And you know she was taking notes in the back and stuff. Um, so you know at one point after that, the jobs guarantee gets announced that it's on her platform. 
and it becomes this kind of big deal. And then all of a sudden you have like the Washington Post and all of these people reporting on the jobs guarantee. And the friends that I had started to, I think Scott, this is like around the time that we became Facebook friends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all of these major media sites start talking about jobs, you know, job guarantee programs. Bernie comes out in favor of it. Gillibrand comes out in favor of it. I think Booker talks about it. Um, and it, and it re-enters the public consciousness. And some of these friends, like, you know, like, like you guys that I was making at the time, <clears throat> I think we started having more conversations there because, you know, there was these questions of like, how did this get to this rock star uh, candidate out in New York? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we started to, to build on these relationships and I really saw an opportunity there um, to contribute uh, to the way what that, that uh, to how what Alexandria represented in her candidacy could connect also intellectually to a movement that was challenging an establishment in policy and in economics. So I, I saw this tremendous opportunity to begin to craft uh, relationships and have certain conversations <clears throat> that, that could contribute to this process. And um, from there, just, uh, I, I think once she won the primary and, and once kind of we got over, well, I don't know if we'll ever be over the, kind of the euphoria of that victory. Hmm. But uh, what happened very quickly was that we realized that, you know, it's, you know, it's serious. Like, holy shit, this is serious. We're, she, she won. Um, we're, we're legit, you know, going to have this, this crazy opportunity. So um, I, I, I knew that right from the beginning, um, she was very interested in the Green New Deal because you know, AOC herself, but also so many people in that, in that kind of ecosystem understood the, the urgency of climate change and understand the urgency of climate change. Um, and I, I think like, that's something that just brings a lot of anxiety to, to, to people of, you know, in and around our generation and, and, you know, below. <clears throat> so, you know, right away, AOC was talking about a green new deal and um, around that time as well, I, I was introduced and started to hang out and have conversations with uh, Robert Hockett as well, who's been on, on the show. And things just kept unfolding. So I decided at that point to kind of pivot from what I was doing with economic democracy and worker ownership and really, and I just decided to really go all in on the Green New Deal. Um, and, I, and I feel like what I was already studying didn't just become irrelevant, but instead plays a huge role, you know, conceptually um, and also moving forward from something like a Green New Deal. <clears throat> so it wasn't like I just kind of threw that away or anything, but I shifted and I decided to really look into this aspect of like, what are we talking about? when we say Green New Deal, what, is, what are the implications for this policy-wise? And what does that mean about the kinds of debates and conversations that we then need to have about federal finance and macroeconomic policy and full employment and sustainability and growth 
and all of these questions. Who's making these, uh, who's driving these conversations? How is it getting articulated in the media? What are the naysayers saying? All these kinds of things become incredibly important and relevant to me. So then that's where, that's where we are now. So that's kind of like how we get to present day. And um, I, I, I always uh, really admired activists and organizers. I, I felt like, you know, I ha- always had tremendous respect for people in that field. Kind of while I was like, you know, in, in a classroom or, or whatnot. <clears throat> and then I just found myself with this, you know, really blessed opportunity to um, travel to many different places and talk about a Green New Deal and talk about all these questions that uh, have become relevant. Um, and, and that's been incredibly rewarding. So this brings us to your dissertation. Yes. Um, which seems to put questions of both democratic organization and institution building and political communication and discourse at the center of movement building and policy making. Can you quickly outline, or not so quickly, up to you, outline or sketch out your dissertation project? How, how are you conceiving of it? And then how does it intersect with and potentially inform your more political activist and organizing work? Sure. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the starting point here is how has number one, how do we traditionally think about policy and what's kind of like a lot of the mainstream views on that. And I think it's very similar to the field of economics where it's kind of very formalistic, and, and, you know, quote unquote, rational based conceptions, rational actor based conceptions of how government functions and how rational actors behave and how this is what constructs policy and government action. And that kind of framing in the mainstream <clears throat> usually is used to explain how then these actors will try to find ways to incentivize market forces or fix market failures. And that has been, I think, historically, a lot of the approach to environmental policy in the US at least. Um, And and even just a lot of policy in general. So I'm kind of coming at it, first of all, trying to problematize that in and of itself. Trying to problematize the notion that that's the best way to study policy and that's actually how policy happens. So <clears throat> I'm interested in looking at policy as a number of things, right? It's like this process that involves organizational components, that involves political struggles, um, and that is also mediated by language, by the way that we communicate and construct these narratives or discourses about our goals, about the society that we live in, about the people and the different actors and categories within that society, how we frame and talk about all of this stuff plays a huge role in what we think is possible and what we do and how we do it. And so recognizing all of that and recognizing the different institutional processes and how the institutions function, all of that is incredibly important for me. Um, And then I think on top of that, there's these issues of political economy which, you know, for the last 40, 50 years or what we can call the neoliberal era, we've kind of stopped caring about political economy and assumed that the system that we have today 
is as good as it gets, right? So <clears throat> taking all of that back into consideration, I'm interested in examining, all right, what is this Green New Deal that we're talking about? Uh, who are the actors that have made it politically relevant? How have they done this? You know, are there social movements involved? Um, what kind of like institutional or organizational relationships or networks are being constructed? Um, how, what kind of challenges are they facing? Right. So like on, on, from one end, it's, it's that part of it. It's the green new deal. Yes. It's a non-binding resolution, but it's so much more than that too. Right. And it, and it, and it got to that place. It didn't just appear there because somebody thought it was a good idea. There's this whole backstory um, to how we were able to get that to that place. <clears throat> and, and then, you know, a whole story that's unfolding about where does it go from here? So there's that question, right? The organizational, political uh, part. And then there's a the question about how are we talking about it? How is the public imagination being shaped and formed? So that's what I'm really interested in. Uh, it's a qualitative research project. So reading, analyzing, deconstructing a lot of the documents that are coming out about the Green New Deal, the interviews, the way people are talking about it, and then also going in and observing these things, kind of documenting the experiences I've had thus far uh, in that space and talking to a lot of people who are you know, making these big decisions and, and <clears throat> shaping things as well. Have you thought much about um, kind of the um, the dual roles that you seem to be taking on, which uh, for your dissertation, where it's on the one hand you're kind of doing ethnographic observation and analysis, but you're also um, a participant, right? Yeah. Uh, and a, and a, and I mean, <laughs> at least from my perspective, a, a pretty major participant. I mean, you're not AOC or or not yet, but <laughs> Uh, but you know, I mean, you're playing constitutive roles, um, in this project. And I'm, I'm curious if, uh, how you're dealing with that, how you're thinking about that. It has, it, has it brought up any, um, like weird questions or problems for you? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, um, so on one hand you have, I, I've always been a fan of partic participatory action research. And I think that it's important to, um, open up that space for knowledge building in general, because uh, I think it is important to think about the way information and knowledge is produced, not as this, um, <clears throat> not as like a static, totally neutral thing, but actually the production of knowledge is deeply ingrained in political processes themselves. So I've always been a fan of that idea and the notion that like, you know, we are, connect co we are collecting knowledge and information but we're also shaping it and uh, having that awareness, um, situating ourselves in that experience too. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, is, it is quite difficult and it requires uh, kind of like a very keen reflective process, ongoing reflective process about um, what, what's happening, what, you're, what, what I'm doing, and what's happening out there. I, I think it can be difficult in the sense that <clears throat> as an activist and an organizer, there's so many things that I want to do. And, uh, you know, I don't like to say no to things 
and I have a lot of big ambitions, mm. but then it's like, do I want to finish my dissertation <laughs> and, and graduate? Um, and it's important to kind of stay focused and, and be able to keep that discipline and um, just get through things, but then also find some time to um, <clears throat> to engage in these bigger issues and, and think about things on kind of like this, this larger level. Um, which is interesting because with the way you framed it, Scott, kind of remind it, it, it makes me think about uh, uh, Mariana Mastricato's approach to industrial policy, where she she kind of critiques using cost benefit analysis for everything and kind of says, you know, let's actually have an ongoing evaluation of our projects and the different kinds of social returns and different kinds of results that they can produce. Uh, it, it kind of strikes me as similar to participatory action research, but actually used productively by the government rather than relying on these like kind of ridiculous reductive methods that we traditionally do. Yeah. And I think that there's an assumption in there that there really is no outside observational position. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Even if there are different modes uh, that might, you know, uh, lean toward uh reflexivity uh, and contemplation and analysis on one on one hand and then um, um, action and decision making and coalition building on the other absolutely and and for me personally that's a lot of my philosophy background coming back in um, and particularly like how interested I was in continental philosophy social theory critical theory um, and kind of like the, the post-structuralist movement um, you know, a lot of people can dismiss that tradition as just being, you know, classroom ivory tower stuff. But I think that it's really important to bring these insights to, you know, actual levels of um, political life and institutional life to help us rethink what, what you know, how we, how we manage a society um, on real terms. So, yeah, absolutely. So from your avowedly and inescapably insider um, perspective where you're both researching and participating in this discourse, I wonder if you might offer us some kind of preliminary conclusions or, or observations about, you know, at the level of political communication and discourse uh, around the Green New Deal, what has been especially and maybe surprisingly effective <coughs> We talked with Bob Hockett about some of the metaphors that have been uh, mobilized here to, to, to frame and, and promote the Green New Deal. Could you comment on what's working well uh, rhetorically and what might you know, benefit from additional thought and um, uh, um, meditation? I think that um, given some of the insights of modern monetary theory, um, and its introduction to a lot of mainstream audiences, the way that we're responding to these uh, questions about finance, federal finance, and how do we pay for these things, although they're, they're not where I personally would want them to be, right? And this kind of like goes back to this thing of like, you know, advocate activist versus someone that's collecting data and information. Um, I think it's still a big step forward 
And it's really interesting to see the nuances of what people make of this kind of new, uh, this new insight that, hey, maybe we don't need to, um, maybe at the, you know, the federal government doesn't need to like find the money somewhere because they issued the money. So maybe the question is different. Maybe the, the terms and the criteria for how we evaluate the limits and uh, the way that we should spend money on these, on these projects that we want should change, right? So it's very interesting to see the different ways that people are <clears throat> kind of thinking about that. It's very interesting to see people just kind of react and criticize modern monetary theory. I think that in and of itself is pointing to um, very interesting data. On, on what terms are people criticize, criticizing it under? How, you know, what strategies are people using to dismiss uh, it altogether as a body of thought? And also kind of what alternatives to the, the proposed best strategy by advocates of modern monetary theory, what are the other strategies that are being uh, kind of put on the table by different actors about a Green New Deal, right? You hear a lot about public banks and, um, there's been some pieces written about let's let's create a network of public banks to finance a green new deal and so that's very interesting to kind of you know just observe but then also from my perspective contribute to that conversation by saying i don't think that that's the best way forward and you know this is why um and then you hear about uh, establishing new institutions or leveraging private capital in different ways right so the the way that the conversation is moving forward has definitely been an improvement because we're not kind of stuck on just like whose taxes are we going to raise? Um, but rather having a more holistic and robust conversation about what it would mean <clears throat> to finance and mobilize a green new deal. Also just considering the fact that like we're on a clock, we're running out of time. And right. uh, you know, for me personally, like this means, you know, th the last thing you want to do, um, and I think it's a very important point to make. The last thing you want to do when we're talking about, you know, something to this to the level of going to the moon or winning a world war, that's the level that we're talking about here. And if we got like 11 years, then the last thing you want to do is start to give people loans and uh, and extend credit, even if they're from public banks. Even if they're a good thing, because I support public banks, but you, you know, you, sh I, I don't think that you should be uh, grounding your entire project on something that's going to require this uh, debt issuance and require some kind of financial return or repayment of these loans, because there's just too much that we have to do too quickly. Uh, so I do see like things like credit unions, public banks, other experiments as complementary, uh, but you know, given what we're facing, we need just, you know, what I, my, my position is we need that modern monetary insight of direct federal spending for what's most urgent about a Green New Deal. So interesting, because given, you know, the last, you know, metaphor that you used and AOC has used as well, talk about climate change, I think it raises the question discursively of the way we can properly communicate the urgency and and all of the sort of contouring factors, as you said, to this potential mobilization. And 
I was wondering if perhaps you could reflect upon the ways in which the our embeddedness in this policy structure, yours, AOC's, and the Green New Deal itself sort of start to turn into a, a sort of propagandizing vehicle for this intersectional justice that we talk about. And if we think about the war or the moon landing, could you reflect on the ways in which the role of governance and of the state and its manifold apparatuses of communication are influencing the ways in which we talk about the Green New Deal? Yes. Um, That's a great question. You know, Donald Trump, like, really did some weird stuff to, (laughs) to, to the culture and to the society. And part of that is, like, he just exposed what was happening and kind of exaggerated the way that uh, media and political structures shaped our imaginations to the level of absurdity. And in, in a way, I feel like Donald Trump kind of like unveiled a lot about who we, who we are, our kind of our darker side, our shadow side. <clears throat> um, we've, we kind of built this virtual reality television sensationalist spectacle culture throughout the 90s uh, in you know throughout my childhood and then as social media came into the picture in the 2000s as an adolescent and then young adult that kind of got taken to new levels and i feel like donald trump is like this reflection of everything wrong with an uncontrolled unhinged spectacle society and i think that somebody like AOC comes in with the knowledge that millennials have of Twitter and social media and memes. And the, you know, I, I, it it can be, it can sound funny, but I think memes, you know, are one of the most important facets of contemporary life, you know, whether it's through humor uh, you know, novel humor, the, the delivery, the medium for humor, and the medium for insight about the world. <clears throat> so, so AOC kind of comes in with got this knowledge of meme culture, of Twitter, of um, <clears throat> of, of all our, our experiences growing up in this culture, with like that biting satire, but also. And, I, and I, here is where I think that there is a step in, in a better direction, <clears throat> because a lot of our culture and, you know, you, there's a lot of criticism about like hipster culture and, and stuff like that based on just too much irony. Like everybody's becoming instead of getting involved in politics, people are becoming overly cynical and overly ironic. And it's just like everybody's got some cynical hot take about everything and whatever, you know, that can be kind of douchey. So. I think AOC comes into the game having a lot of this knowledge and sharing a lot of these experience that we all share, but bringing with her like some genuine, wholesome desire to really connect with people for the world to better connect with one another and to like heal 
to, to heal from all the trauma of our history as human beings and, um, and the trauma of political life uh, to at least attempt to dare to be bold enough to attempt to heal and to do better, you know, to, to connect with our, our better selves, our best selves, to dare to do that. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, AOC is one figure that I think represents this attempt. And, and, you know, I, I love her to death. I think she, she does this brilliantly, but I think that it's not just her, right? It's like, who else can, who else is a part of this? And I think there, there is this kind of desire um, to bring struggle and critique and the rage and the anger that comes with injustice, the, the desire to mobilize politically and say, this is wrong with also the desire to care for one another and to heal. Um, and so I think that those messages and those metaphors have the potential uh, to emerge through, I don't know if I'm going totally off topic here, but I think they have the potential to uh, emerge through the apparatuses of the state in different ways, in ways that change the state itself, the more that we engage in the political process. Yeah, agreed. And certainly the the public provisioning of media and pushing back through a job guarantee and other um, efforts, pushing back against this um, intensely privatized, corporatized um, media spectacle machine is, I think, where all this is pointing. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's just so transactional and um, it's so atomizing. And there's these contradictions that exist where we feel like we need, uh, you know, like we need a lot of likes and stuff like that, you know, and this is kind of like the the struggles that <clears throat> contemporary people deal with, and especially young people, where on one hand, we are kind of uh, driven to think that this is what we need to be happy and to be content. Um, but there is this kind of like, overwhelming emptiness uh, with that as well. So trying to find different ways of engaging with these structures, and the capacity that the public has by challenging this, these these uh, for, you know these structures that are atomizing that are transactional, um, <clears throat> and in and uh, supplementing them with other opportunities, and I think the jobs guarantee is a huge potential for something like that, as is the Green New Deal's capacity in general to mobilize people to save the planet. I mean, I think like that's where it's at. If it, mobilizing people to go to war is one thing. Um, and, and if you can construct that narrative in a way that, that uh, speaks to people's patriotism, nationalism, whatever, you know, World War II, defeating the Nazis, that's definitely a very galvanizing force. Uh, going to the moon, you know, the curiosity that we have to, to leave this planet, I think we still have that curiosity um, to the to uh, the, the technological aspect of going to the moon, and then also there's a political aspect of like you know out competing the Russians and whatnot, and that speaks to the same things that like war does. Uh, but the Green New Deal kind of like offers this opportunity to take a lot of that same energy, but just repurpose it for something that's qualitatively distinct, saving the planet not by killing one another or not by intimidating our enemies, <clears throat> but by learning to live in harmony. I mean, what, what a concept, right? <laughs> and to, to make a connection that I think is implicit in what you're saying, right? 
similar to your methodology as this sort of embedded participant observer, um, you seem to be saying that there's this sort of embedded praxis mode within the spectacle itself that you and and certainly your analysis of AOC um, are argue is vital to the very structures of change making and movement building that we are undertaking, I think, through this podcast and then collectively on the left. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's so much also about um, society today is being mediated through like these co-production mechanisms. Um, but, but we also see that there are these attempts to keep these systems private and monopolized, whether it's Facebook or, uh, or, or Google or the NSA or that kind of controls our data. But yet at the same time, we're like called upon to like participate in making and remaking ourselves. So I think at this level too, is that we are in the process of observing politics. We are like making and remaking ourselves. Yeah, it seems like a dialectical potential built into the present um, media, social and political and economic system. Yeah. And and um, so, you know, for example, our, our colleague Rowan Gray kind of talks a lot about the importance of uh, privacy rights and establishing good uh, fiat, digital fiat currency and uh, digital payment systems for public purpose. And like, I think that's so key because we hear all this stuff about like Bitcoin and the blockchain and you know, and, and they become these huge fads that have like such a cultural identity aspect to them where people feel like, yeah, I, I bought Bitcoin, I'm going to change the world, right? You know, like there's this aspect of that, <clears throat> but it's often missing this foundational piece of, of the political dimension of it and, and whether we can go beyond this uh, private, you know, Scott, you use the word privation a lot. I think it's, it's, it's definitely applicable in this case, um, where we deprive ourselves of the capacity to act in public in a way of public purpose. So I definitely think that potential is there. talk a little bit about AOC and, and how she seems sort of um, like the the perfect political actor for our times in terms of engaging with the, our, our modes of communication and kind of uh, uh, having the, the, the ironic read of the situation, but then toggling back to this kind of affirmative, here's what we now need to do given how bad things are and how clearly we see they are. Um, also thinking about that, that original campaign ad, which was produced by Means TV, mm-hmm. and thinking about how important that was, and then seeing Means TV come alongside 
you know, and start their own thing. Um, and then, you know, MMT converging with, with AOC, um, it, 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 if, if you were, um, you know, just looking at it for the first time these last couple of years, you might think that this just, this was a sort of cosmic alignment. How, how could it have happened? Yeah. Um, and, and there, there's a degree of truth to that, but I think also, you know, if you take a longer view, you'll see that at least in the MMT respect, there's been a, an expanding coalition over the past several years, maybe a decade since the in the years after the financial crisis. Um, could you kind of sketch out for us what you uh, uh, understand that MMT coalition to be and look like, um, like who the key players are, where they come from, who they represent, um, who's on board, who's not? Key challenges ahead. I could go on, um, but but what is the what is the coalition uh, around MMT around a, a, as it relates to the Green New Deal look like to you? Oh man, what a question! I feel like you can write a dissertation about just that question. <laughs> Someone should do that. <laughs> Someone should do that. Somebody listening should do that. Yeah, somebody do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think there's like different pieces of it, and the key is like for that coalition or ecosystem to figure out how to everybody do their role and work in harmony at the same time or like work towards the same purpose. So on one hand, there are the figures that are in politics proper. So obviously like Stephanie Kelton and her work as a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders. And she's kind of like all over the place, um, flying all around the world talking about these issues, demystifying the, you know, the fear that people have to talk about deficits and money and making it very, very clear and accessible for somebody to be like, oh, okay, yeah, like, like that makes sense. Um, so, so, you know, Stephanie, um, I think of Pavlina and her commitment to, to the job guarantee and unemployment I, I kind of see the role of Pavlina and, and Fadl Kaboob here um, working on this part of the way that MMT is about people not suffering from unemployment and not suffering from austerity uh, through, through government action. What does that mean for neighborhoods? What does that mean for public health? Um, what does that mean for the like, environment proper? What are the potentials for food, for housing, that, that sort of thing? <clears throat> um, so I think there that as well. I think that what Matt Forstatter is doing uh, at UMKC, kind of keeping this work alive by inspiring a new generation of students to use this tradition and paradigm about modern money, um, but in a way that has applicability to concerns about, you know, interdisciplinary concerns about race, about gender, and and, and kind of being able to formulate the importance of that interdisciplinary perspective, which I think is key, because for me, that's what brought me to MMT in the first place. You know, I, I came here because I recognized when I first started to learn about it that we're talking about legal perspectives we're talking about the history and anthropology of money we're talking about accounting we're talking about macroeconomics we're talking about poli- so many things right 
And it was just like, all right, yeah, this makes more sense than these kind of ridiculous models that neoclassical economists are talking about. Um, and then, and then there's kind of like, you know, these rogue warriors in, in the modern uh, money network, Rowan and Nathan and Raul, who are maybe a little bit under the radar, but, uh, but are kind of like grinding out all of these things and putting on these conferences. You know, we had, um, how to pay for the green new deal at Harvard law and, um, it was just like an amazing experience because that got coordinated and organized so quickly and effectively. Like everybody kind of just like, you know, one day Rowan was like, we're going to do this. This is everybody's thing. This, you know, here the people are going to speak, make it happen. (laughs) We put it together and it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Right. Talking about overview of the green new deal and modern money. Uh, okay, what about inflation? Let's talk about inflation. What about investment? Let's talk about investment. Um, then, of course, bringing in Sarah Nelson as uh, an ally to uh, macroeconomic policy, modern monetary theory, and the Green New Deal from the perspective of labor and all the amazing work that she's doing, bringing back the labor movement, contributing to bringing back the labor movement, and uh, and how important it is to to not forget that uh, unions have a critical role to play in this struggle to build a better world. And we just can't forget that. Um, Expanding the number of unions, introducing the idea of striking again, um, introducing the general, the idea of a general strike again, the role that policy at the federal reserve has on labor has on unemployment Thinking about these issues of, uh, you know, people talk about the minimum wage, but when you have unemployment, the minimum wage is nothing. The minimum wage is unemployment, and uh, and how that affects and shapes the thinking and the politics of the labor movement, right? So I think that that's very important too. And and this question of like the Green New Deal is not trying to say is not trying to screw over working people, even if they're working in. Uh, the fossil fuel industry, because, you know, the problem is, you know, the industry and the owners of the hoarders of the wealth and the people that kind of keep uh, giving little options for people to do good work and the lack of options that exist. So kind of getting labor on board that we're serious about a transition to uh, better jobs, good paying, better jobs to do something that is different, that is not destroying the environment. So I think that that's very important as well. Um, you know, the work that you all are doing in, in um, asking questions about modern monetary theory, modern money and federal finance at, at a, at a kind of like a epistemological level, at a met- methodological level, um, you know, the implications for critical theory and political economy about what MMT is saying um, and and having these debates in good faith, because there's a lot of people out there who don't have these debate, debate, debates in good faith, uh, having these debates with other traditions and orthodoxies on the left and and trying to get to a deeper level of understanding, seeing where, where we can align, seeing where there really are convergences and divergences, that sort of thing as well. Um, and then, of course, you have like people in the legal world, like you know Bob Pocket and whatnot, 
coming at it from law and finance and banking. That's really important too. Um, the relationships that we're building with the Sunrise Movement is absolutely key with DSA, uh, with DSA, their environmental socialist working group. That has been very, very important as well. I think that the vision that they have, uh, they have a document out <clears throat> on like uh, environment, uh, eco-socialism. And I think that their vision very much aligns with what a Green New Deal through MMT uh, is advocating for as well. Um, the work of people that do participatory uh, economics and economic democracy kind of work in also saying, all right, so we are talking about the capacity to use public money and federal policy, public policy in, in these ways that are that are different, that really empower the power, uh, empower the, the federal government to use fiscal policy to meet these needs to use functional finance to meet uh, certain goals, to invest, to create real social returns. Uh, let's incorporate also the dimension of new forms of ownership, new forms of democratic ownership to manage and administer some of these projects as well. And you know that kind of opens up a possibility to shift the relationship between people and the state in the same way that we've been talking about um, being an observer, but also a participant, you know, what does that mean for our engagement with our own government? What can that mean potentially? Like uh, Michael Munzer has some really good stuff on the social public and this new way that we can relate with our government so that it's not necessarily always this traditional bureaucratic top-down administered system, but can be something a little bit more, um, yeah, collaborative and, and uh, democratic. I don't know. I can think of so many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, uh, yeah, there's there's no way to fit it all. And, and we might shout out the real progressives. And that, uh, That's right, yeah. Uh, and the work that they're doing, you know, uh, online connecting with um, people who are not in academia and whatnot, and that's, that's critical. And as a short aside as well, there's um, work being done, you know, in their own sphere, but by the financial press to really cover um, the question of money and politics, you know, Joe Weisenthal or Alexandra Skaggs, to name a few of them. Kate, uh, Kate Aronoff at The Intercept. Yeah. I think she's, she's doing really, really important stuff. Yeah, like real progressive, as you all mentioned. And then the stuff that's happening internationally, too. You know, we can't forget about that because oh, yeah. what's interesting <laughs> is. Every, you know, so many different countries around the world are talking about a Green New Deal, even though, you know, it's this kind of U.S. centered um, resolution at the moment. The concept, at least, is is very popular, whether that's in, that's in Latin America or in Europe. So there are people in, in Austria. Um, there was a candidate for European Parliament, Julia Herr. And she was on board with the European Green New Deal <clears throat> um, and the work being done by, um, you know, economists over there talking about this stuff. It's getting more popular. People in Mexico are very interested in this kind of work now. I'm in conversation with people there. That's kind of like the latest, I guess, in, in, in what I've been doing activism wise uh, because of my dual identity. As a as a Colombian-born immigrant, Latin American, um, I feel a responsibility also to be engaged with, you know, my roots and have like a global perspective in that sense. So, I've, I've uh, 
I'm in conversation with people in Mexico and in Colombia about what MMT can offer when you are not in a country like the United States. When you're in a country that does not have the same flexibility and fiscal space that the United States has to spend its its uh, its money and its currency, <clears throat> what kind of movements and reforms and changes can be can yeah can be productive and desirable? So that's really important too, and I think that that is a big part of the future of MMT scholarship to go to that realm of. Uh, development economics and political economy. Well, it's interesting, too, because the, the, the interest in the Green New Deal in, in other countries and, and the excitement about it kind of underscores the, the, the way that the task ahead of all of us exceeds the metaphors of the, you know, the nation-centered metaphors that we're, we like to use. But um, it, it's it's vital that it becomes an international, um, um, non-competitive, let's do this together kind of, of action. Absolutely. You know, and like these questions are super important. So for example, um, I know some MMTers and myself were, were critical of Elizabeth Warren and the way she framed her industrial policy, um, around producing green technology here in the United States and then selling it to the rest of the world. And uh, I think that that is that was problematic for me in the sense that it sounded it sounded too closely like extorting the developing world for access to green technology. You know, like nobody else has this. We have it. If you all want to survive climate change, you're going to have to pay up. And um, that means something very different between, you know, Europe and the United States as it does between a country in Latin America and the United States. So many, many of us uh, have been talking about how to reform intellectual property rights so that some of these technologies that are vital for countries to become green and sustainable can have access to them without these kind of like economic dependencies. So that's really important too. And if, if, if you take kind of like a crude MMT perspective of imports and exports, you might miss that. And so, uh, you know, I think these are like the nuances that are arising now about power at the international level. Yeah, and the international solidarity point overlaps with the uh, the fiscal capacity point, right? I mean, this is a, 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 a open international, an open relationship to intellectual property um, um, is good for social justice, but it also makes sense when you recognize that the U.S. government doesn't need revenue from from other countries around the world. It can generate as many dollars as it, as it needs to to serve public and ecological purposes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, what, what that can mean also for the, the very idea of uh, currency itself and, you know, in the context of the developing world, many of many countries' currencies don't have the same ability that, that the U.S. dollar has. So, you know, can we use the U.S. dollar in productive ways? Can we come up with a better kind of regional type of currencies? 
to be distributed? Can we repurpose the World Bank for actual productive goals? All these kinds of things, I think, come into play. These questions come into play. Well, Andres, this has been such a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on Money on the Left. Thank, uh, thank you all. Uh, it was my pleasure to be here. So what I liked about that conversation um, was that Andres really um, pushed back on some of the, I think, popular opinions on the left and maybe in certain Marxist circles that MMT and the money perspective is just a, a kind of technocratic analysis that's really not about politics or organizing or history or media and communication. I, I just think um, th- our conversation was really important for showing that the MMT movement is so much more than um, MMT memes and a, a few technocratic tricks. Well, and, and along those lines, most of the people who come to MMT come from different places and from different perspectives. And Andres uh, talking about the his, his involvement with the you know co-op movements um, and kind of narrating that and and how he finally came to you know take the MMN conference stuff seriously and think back on his experience, just sort of having gone to one of those conferences several years before and then the way that that lines up. And I I think that that's another kind of, um, if not misconception, maybe even a a sort of assumption a lot of people have is that, you know, MMT advocates are all doctrinaire and sort of ahistorically so. Like, people come to MMT and and to neo-chartalism with their own questions and histories, and that usually generates, I mean, in this case, some amazing things. And bringing that together with a real sense of interdisciplinary solidarity, um, I think really speaks to what we're trying to do with this podcast and and the ways in which, as you said, Billy, background, but also, you know, methodology can can change and alter the shape of what MMT teaches us. Um, I think that really came out in this conversation and it's really important for, for the way we look at not only doing this podcast, but conducting um, a leftist political project along MMT's terms. You've been listening to Money on the Left, presented by Monthly Review Online. Special thanks to Andres Bernal for joining us today, and to Alex Williams for producing the episode. Thanks also to Hillbilly Motorbike for the theme tune. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at, at @MoneyOnTheLeft, and check out our full episode archive at mronline.org.